last time we spoke, I pretty much left you all on a very large cliffhanger. We had begun with the Japanese invasion, going further into Burma, where Brigadier Smythe tried to persuade his superiors to allow the 17th Division to retreat to the Sitang River, only to be refused. Then when his forces finally were given permission, it turned into an absolute disaster, leading many of the 17th Division left on the wrong side of the river as its bridge was destroyed. Then, the Japanese seized the Dutch and Portuguese-held colony of Timor, the last Dao of Java. Having surrounded Java completely, the Japanese then sent a colossal invasion force to take the crown of the Dutch East Indies. Abdukam had fallen apart. Wavel abandoned it, leaving Helfrich and Dorman the ultimate task to attack the IGN invasion force and save Java. Now we will conclude what is known as the Battle of Java Sea. This episode is the Fall of Java. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, let me remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to see an episode like my latest, Southeast Asia During World War I, or... Maybe some historic film reviews, like I did when I reviewed a few Pearl Harbor films. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Over 12 weeks ago, it feels like a lifetime, the Pacific War kicked off against the West when the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and commenced its evasions all across the Asia-Pacific. At the end of the planned first phase of their war aims was the crown of the Dutch East Indies, Java. In the last episode, I spoke about what is known as the First Battle of Java Sea, and I didn't even finish it. I apologize, but because of the nature of this show and its mother YouTube episodes, i.e. week by week in real time, it cut right down the middle on us. So yeah, sorry about that. But now, we're going to continue with the first and second battle of Java Sea. Now, for just a quick reminder, the Japanese planned to execute two large amphibious landings on Java. One, in western Java, carried out by the 2nd Division of Lieutenant General Murayama Maseo, and by the Shoji Detachment, that being the 230th Regiment of the 38th Division, that was designated as the Western Assault Force. They had 56 transports escorted by three light cruisers, 13 destroyers, and the aircraft carrier Ryujo, led by Admiral Ozawa. Then there was the Eastern Assault Force to land on the eastern side of Java, which had the 48th Division led by Lieutenant General Tsuchichihashi Yutsu and the Sakakuji Detachment. They were moved using 40 transports escorted by two cruisers and eight destroyers under the command of Admiral Takagi. Overall command of the entire naval invasion was Rear Admiral Takeo Takagi, who was very able as an admiral, but also known to be quite cautious. They had all departed on February the 19th and neared their objectives by February the 27th. Now, for the Dutch, Java was defended by 25,000 troops, mainly poorly trained Japanese recruits, supported by 3,500 British troops, 2,500 Australians, 
and a thousand Americans. The force was under the command of General Heinzeporten, and he divided his troops into three sectors. Batavia and West Java was defended by the 1st and 2nd Regiments, alongside the 1st Cavalry Regiment, an armored battalion under the command of Major General Weibrandus Schilling. Central Java was defended by the 4th Regiment, the South Group Regiment, and the Tilachap Brigade under the command of Major General Pierce Cox. Eastern Java was defended by the 6th Regiment and the Barizin Corps, Madora Regiment under the command of Major General Gustav Lingen. The British force was under the command of Major General Sir Hervey Deggie. The Americans were under the command of Major General Julian Francis Barnes, and the Australians under Brigadier Arthur S. Blackburn, known as the Black Force. The naval forces were all under the command of Admiral Helfrich, who had formed two strike forces to try and intercept the incoming two IGN invasion forces. And I'm just going to say it right now, I do apologize to any of my Dutch listeners if I mispronounce some of the names or places. I can speak French and quite a bit of German, but I do find Dutch a little bit challenging. I'll try my best. Now last time we commenced with the story of the First Battle of Java Sea, when Dorman took the reign of the Abda Strike Force and made a sortie against the Eastern Assault Convoy, led by Admiral Takagi. The battle went horribly for the multinational force of Abda, which was hamstrung by many, many issues such as Dorman simply having a difficult time making himself understood in English, as the Abda strike force had no common signal books nor common codes. Thus, Dorman's flagship communicated by blinker lights in plain English, which proved very, very difficult to understand in the heat of battle, as you can imagine. In the words of the young lieutenant aboard the Houston, as I said in the last episode, one of my favorite quotes, it was as follows. It was like 11 All-Stars playing Notre Dame without a single practice session. End of quote. The Dutch destroyer Kortenaar was sunk by a torpedo. Electra was shelled until her crew had to abandon her. Executor was crippled and had to limp back. Thus, Abda's strike force was quite literally crumbling. Dorman ordered smokescreens, and he tried to safely get the force away, as Takagi did a similar thing by pulling back. The battle was over, but as the darkness of night came over them all, Instead of going back to port with the others, Dorman decided to press his attack with the available forces he still had. The U.S. destroyers returned to port to refuel and rearm at Surabaya, leaving Dorman with just four cruisers able to still fight effectively. Dorman chose first to flee south and protect the injured warships as they tried to escape to their respective ports. But at 9.25pm, disaster struck again. The British destroyer Jupiter struck a Dutch mine, exploding her and sinking her within minutes. Dorman now hoped against all odds to take his meager four-cruiser force and then turn northeast to try and circumvent the IGN screening force and attack the transports, who he hoped were all alone, as he tried to land troops on the Java coast. Without any air reconnaissance, it was a blind gamble. Meanwhile, the IGN cruiser scout planes were scrambling to find his forces, trying to escape back to the respective ports. The scout planes would plunge flares over any dark silhouettes they thought they saw in the hopes of illuminating them. Meanwhile, the IGN cruisers were shooting star shells across the horizon, hoping to catch a glimpse of the enemy. At 9.50pm, a parachute flare floated down over one of Dorman's cruisers. The crew felt completely exposed, and with good reason, as more and more flares began to fall from the sky, the force was indeed spotted. Admiral Takagi quickly maneuvered his ships to go in for the kill. One of Takagi's lookout cruisers, the Nachi, scanned the horizon with one of the IGN's 
excellent night vision glasses. Which is probably prompting you to ask, what did he just say? Night vision? No, not uh, real night vision goggles. Though it should be noted, Germany was working on prototypes for that. Nothing would come to fruition, but uh, later on in history, of course, we know the night vision would be created. No, Japan during the first half of World War II had a distinct advantage using these, only way to describe them, huge brass and steel binoculars on many of their warships. I myself am not a naval historian. When I read in a paragraph from one of my very good sources that the Japanese were using night vision glasses, it raised my eyebrows. So I had to go down the rabbit hole to really see what exactly they were talking about. So as I said, these huge brass and steel binoculars that were on many other warships, they were often large enough to fit a human head inside with lenses that absorbed up to 980 times more light than the human eye, offering a view of objects up to 20 miles away. Many of these were built by the Nippon Kogaku Company, a supplier that later became Nikon, the camera company we know today. On top of the excellent binoculars, the IGN trained specifically for night combat, both for tactics, but also for using equipment. Japan chose its spotters very carefully and selected those who had the best vision, including best vision at night. Crews were drilled to use searchlights or flares dropped from spotter planes to illuminate targets, and then gun crews would time their salvos to march the splashes and zero in on targets. Crews aboard destroyers and cruisers were also trained in nighttime torpedo tactics, as we have already seen quite a few times. The Type 93 Long Lance torpedo proved to be one of the IGN's deadliest night weapons. Before the widespread introduction of US fire control radar and tactics doctrine to exploit it, this night fighting training was a crushing tactical advantage for the Japanese. During the 1930s and 1940s, while the US and Britain focused on developing radar technology, the Japanese largely ignored the new technology. Not completely, mind you, they were developing it. But they believed in the superiority of their optics using binoculars, which led them to think they didn't really need radar at the beginning of the war. Until mid-1943, the trained Japanese lookouts on just a decent starry night, could spot an American warship equipped with radar before a blip appeared on its radar screen. But eventually, as American search radars got better and better, they would begin to outsee the Japanese night binoculars. And thus radar proved to be the real cutting edge technology of naval warfare during the Pacific War. It's rather ironic to reiterate the racial attitudes of the day in which, and I gotta say it, look, for the hundredth time, the uh, allies were told that the Japanese couldn't see well, they were nearsighted, and that they wouldn't fight at night because of this. That proved to be not just wrong, but a real blunder. Anyways, back to the action at hand. A lookout on the cruiser Nachi spotted Dorman's ships by 11 p.m. Both of Tagagi's lines began to fire star shells madly at the four cruisers, Reji Masuda, the merchant marine officer aboard the Arizona Maru, had never seen anything like it in his life. He said, quote, Thunder of big guns, flashes of light, flares in the dark sky, columns of fire. End of quote. Two IGN cruisers, Haguro and the Nachi, advanced closer in to get into range. At 11.53 p.m., they got 8,000 yards near Dormant's force when Admiral Takagi ordered them to launch their torpedoes. Nachi unleashed eight torpedoes and the Haguro four straight at Dormant's cruisers. 13 minutes later, Diruta exploded in a mighty thunderclap, being broken apart in two. It was a long-lance torpedo fired by the heavy cruiser Haguro that sank Dorman's flagship, Diruta. As recalled by Dutch Marine Corporal Rosier, quote, 
It was like the ship was lifted from the water. All lights went out. We were listing and a fire broke out all over the anti-aircraft deck. End of quote. Those fires, they ignited her magazines, setting off a secondary explosion that briefly lit up the entire sea for a mile. Diruta's two separated parts sank, taking 367 men and doormen with them to the bottom. Four minutes later, there was another deafening explosion, this time just behind Houston. It was Java. Torpedoes from the Nachi had hit her. Burning furiously, her bow reared high into the air. Hundreds of crewmen dropped off like ants as the ship slid backwards into the dark sea, though it would take an hour and a half to fully sink. Java would go down with 509 of her crew to the bottom. Survivors from Diruta and Java would number in total 111. Dorman's final order was for surviving ships to, quote, To the mercy of the enemy, break off the engagement and withdraw to Tanchung Kriok. End of quote. And that is just what the new senior officer of the fleet, the captain of Perth, did. Perth and Houston broke away through the darkness as the Java Sea was now a Japanese lake. And no further Allied naval resistance could stop the invasion of Java. The first battle of Java Sea was over. Abda was mortally wounded. Now the Japanese Eastern Force had a free hand to continue their landings unmolested. Meanwhile, Helfrich sent a Western strike force to try and intercept the IGN Western assault force, but failing to find them. After losing so much, Helfrich decided to try and save what was left of his command, in the hopes of them living to fight another day. Helfrich ordered all naval forces to flee towards Ceylon in the Indian Ocean. The Ballet Strait east of Java offered the quickest route south from Surabaya, and the four American old four pipers that had retired to Surabaya managed to sneak through that strait on the last night of February. They saw a tiny bit of action in a long-range fight with the IGN task force hunting them down, but managed to break free during the night and made it to Fremantle on the western coast of Australia. The wounded British cruiser Executor, accompanied by HMS Encounter and USS Pope, took their chances creeping out of Surabaya at night. They hoped to evade the detection of the IGN by hugging the south coast of Borneo, and then they tried to make a high-speed run for the Sunda Strait. Unfortunately, Executor was still injured and could only pull 16 knots, but her engine crews performed miracles upon her and got her to push 23 knots. By March the 1st, the three ships were spotted, both from aircraft and by the IGN patrolling ships. Admiral Takagi moved his forces in to destroy them. Two separate IGN task forces consisting of four heavy cruisers and two destroyers hit them from two different directions. At 9.40 a.m., a heavy gun duel began. Pope and Encounter tried to lay smokescreen down to protect the executor, but the gunfire was simply too intense. Several hits were made on all the three Allied ships, and finally, a crippling blow was dealt to the executor, cutting her power, rolling her over, and sinking her by 11 a.m. Five minutes later, Encounter succumbed to several salvo hits and sank. Pope survived long enough, trying to head north towards Borneo, only to be bombed by 10 F-1M Pete floatplanes and 6 Kates from the aircraft carrier Ryujo. Pope sank as her survivors were picked up by an IGN destroyer. They would spend the next three and a half years in hell. Back on February the 28th, the Houston and Perth refueled with haste at Tanjung Kriok and sortied that night at 7 p.m. in the hopes of slipping through the Sunda Strait. The HNLMS Everston joined them a bit further behind, and at 10.15 p.m. near Bantam Bay, at the western extremity of Java, they stumbled upon a group of anchored IGN transports 
These were part of the IGN Western Assault Force, and they were perfectly lit up by moonlight, landing troops and supplies, and quite vulnerable. But the IGN had seven cruisers, ten destroyers, and the aircraft carrier Ryujo in the vicinity. Houston and Perth began to open fire on the transports, and only one IGN destroyer was close enough to try and stop them. Soon, the other IGN warships rushed to the scene after witnessing the salvos. Three IGN cruisers and nine destroyers fired over 87 torpedoes, and very haphazardly. There was absolute mayhem caused by the IGN destroyers' smoke screens going off, and the 12 IGN ships tried to converge on the Allied warships all simultaneously. Several torpedoes overshot the Houston and Perth, hitting the IGN transports in the background. The Houston and Perth watched hopelessly as they were quickly surrounded by the Asian warships from all directions, which poured shells everywhere around them. Then Japanese aircraft began to circle overhead to add insult to injury. The last moments were recalled by Commander A.L. Mayer on the Houston, who said, quote, All communication systems, which were still operative, were hopelessly overloaded with reports of damage received, of approaching torpedoes, of new enemy attacks begun, or changes in targets exchange. End of quote. The American and Australian ships dished out as much punishment back as they could in an extremely unequal exchange of salvos. Yet, in the brawl, Japanese ships were getting hit by their own friendly fire. They had fired too many damn torpedoes in a relatively small kill zone. Over four IGN transports and a mine lair at Bantam Bay were sunk by these torpedoes, including the Ryujomaru, the headquarters ship of General Imamura, commander of the 16th Army. At the ripe age of 55, fully armed, General Imamura swam around the oil-covered waters in his life jacket until he was rescued around 4.30 a.m. When he would finally get ashore, his face was covered in black oil, and once seated upon a pile of bamboo, he allegedly said out loud, Congratulations on the successful landing. End of quote. For those of you who know your history of the Pacific War and the relationship between the IGN and the IGA, there's some dry humor in there. Anyways, at midnight, the Perth took a direct hit from an 8-inch shell, followed by a torpedo under her waterline. She sank very quickly from these wounds. The Houston was pummeled by shell fire and torpedoes, and after a few minutes, just after midnight, a shell penetrated her engine room, which broke a steam main, scalding her engine crew to death. Oof. Steam ruptured through her deck, and she listed heavily starboard. By 12.25 a.m., Captain Rooks ordered the crew to abandon ship, and shortly after that, Houston was struck directly in the bridge, killing the captain. She rolled onto her side, and by 12.45, she sank to the bottom. 307 crew of Perth and 368 of Houston were picked up by the Japanese and would languish in prison camps for the remainder of the war. The destroyer Everston, which had followed the two cruisers, had caught up to them and then saw the battle from a distance, being unable to make much of a difference. Everston attempted to escape along the coast of Sumatra, but ended up getting spotted by Japanese destroyers Murakumo and Shirakumo and had to run aground. The Allied ships remained on the south coast of Java at Tirajap, and they were ordered by Helfrich to try and escape, and some managed to do so, but others, like the destroyer Edsal and the oilers Pecos, were attacked by Chuichinagumo's carrier planes. Thus, this concluded what is now known as the Second Battle of Java Sea. The Abda fleet was all but annihilated. Ten ships were sunk, 2,173 sailors were dead. Not a single Japanese warship had been sunk in the defense of the Malay barrier, which itself was now broken. The immediate aftermath of the naval battle was met with a ton of criticism of the Dutch commanders, 
though none doubted their courage. One skipper on an American destroyer that escaped to Australia said of Admiral Dorman, quote, that he lacked a firm grasp of tactics and communications, but that the Dutch fought with unfaltering courage and dogged determination. They went to their deaths with a grim foreknowledge. End of quote. Admiral King said of the Java Sea campaign, quote, It was a magnificent display of very bad strategy. End of quote. Now I'm going to speak in depth about a campaign that often goes completely unnoticed in all Pacific War literature, that of the invasion of Java. As I began writing this one, I myself became quite frustrated as most of my own sources sum up this invasion with a single page. I am not kidding. I won't lie, it's a nightmarish campaign to tell in a podcast format, as it involves something like 50 towns being captured simultaneously by dozens of smaller Japanese units. It will be quite a bit jarring, to say the least, for those who are unfamiliar with the geography, but I'm going to do my very best to try and make it cohesive. Not to mention, I will do my very best to pronounce a lot of these towns' names uh, accurately. It's pretty, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult, this one. I do my best, people. But basically, think of it this way. When I speak about all of these different Japanese units hitting numerous towns, they are all attacking the outside, the external part of the island, while marching further and further inland towards three main targets. Those three main targets are Batavia, Surabaya, and Tilajap. So by 4 a.m. on March the 1st, despite being smashed by their own torpedoes, most of the bulk of the landing forces at Batambe safely got ashore, even poor General Imamura. General Imamura wanted to concentrate his actions against the main ABDA forces located around Batavia in western Java, while his crack 48th Division that had devastated MacArthur's men in the Philippines, landed in East Java at Kraigan, some 40 miles west of Surabaya. The forces in the west were the 2nd Division, which divided itself into three detachments, the Nasu Detachment, commanded by General Nasu Yumyo, would march on Rainkast Bitung, between Batavia and Bandung. The Fukushima Detachment, commanded by Colonel Fukushima Kiyasaku, would march on Mount Merak and Merak Island before advancing towards Batavia. Last, the Seito Detachment, commanded by Colonel Hanshichi Seito, would march along the coastal roads through Bantam and Tangarang towards Batavia. Without any air or naval support, General Deporten planned a fighting withdrawal from the four defensive areas in the important cities of Batavia, Surabaya, and Tilajap. Most of his best forces were concentrated in the western sector and would fight until they were pushed into Batavia. The Nasu detachment managed to overwhelm the Dutch forces at Merak, Silagong, and Serang before getting to Rangas Bitung by dusk, forcing the Dutch to withdraw to Bandung. The Fukushima detachment managed to hit Serang and Sedo's detachment hit Bantam. Meanwhile, the eastern forces suffered some aerial bombardment although it was not enough to stop the 48th Division and the Sakaguchi Detachment from landing at Kragang and successfully capturing Rembang at the Sipu oil field. From there, the 48th Division attacked Surabaya and the Sakaguchi Detachment attacked Tilaja. The Shoji Detachment landed and divided into two battalions, one which marched towards Kelijatsi airfield and the other marched on Kuawang Bridge over the Sitarum River. The force that marched on Kalijadzi airfield were engaged and driven off four times by Dutch defenders, but would eventually capture the airfield by midday. The defenders had to flee to Bandung as the Japanese refitted the airfield for their own use. Yet despite their success at taking the airfield, Hein de Porten immediately ordered 500 Dutch units in armored vehicles to counterattack them, 
giving them a hell of a hard fight. The Japanese would go on to execute 80 of the surrendering British and Dutch troops in reprisal for this action. The Sakaguchi detachment was only able to take Bora by nightfall. Meanwhile, the 48th Division had a vanguard capture Rembang while the rest of the division marched upon Seipu and Boyonegoro. By March the 2nd, the vanguard of the Nasu detachment ran into some Australian gunners at Siputeng, leading to a heavy firefight. But the Japanese eventually managed to overwhelm them, forcing the defenders to flee towards Leiviliang. The Fukushima detachment reached the Pamaran Bridge by midnight, and the Sedo Detachment reached the Kijung Bridge. The Shoji Detachment ran into some real trouble when it was isolated at Subang and counterattacked by 250 soldiers and 25 light tanks. The Japanese managed to destroy 20 of the light tanks before the defenders finally pulled back. The Sakaguchi Detachment captured the towns of Purwodadi and Nigawan while the 48th Division defeated some Dutch units with ease and captured Seipu. Though the oil field at Seipu had already been destroyed, the Japanese found that many bridges over the Solo River had been blown up by the defenders, but managed to find a few bridges still intact and were able to cross. Once across the Solo River, the Sakaguchi Detachment seized Bugel and marched on Surakarta, Meanwhile, the Shoji detachment and another unit braced themselves for Dutch counterattacks, supported by even more armored vehicles. Despite the armor support, the Kajajatsi airfield allowed the 3rd Air Division of Major General Endo Saburo to bomb and strafe the Allied counterattack, destroying over 150 Dutch vehicles and causing 100 casualties. A devastating blow. And yet, despite the absolutely smashing of the Allies using their air support, the Shoji detachment feared an encirclement and decided to pull out and advance instead on Bandung. Upon reaching Le Villiang, the vanguard of the Nasu detachment ran into the main part of the Australian Black Force, which held defensive positions, entrenched in pillboxes, holding back the invaders ferociously. Both the Fukushima and Seito detachments arrived at the Siduran River, capturing the bridges at Maja and Pirigi. Seeing no roads from Maja, Fukushima was ordered to support Nasu's rear to help smash the Black Force, while Seito captured the town of Balraja. By March the 4th, the situation became more desperate for the Shoji detachment, and knowing they needed help, the Nasu detachment joined in the fight against the Black Force to get to them. Under the cover of darkness, the Black Force pillboxes were charged against from multiple sides. The Australians gave fierce resistance, inflicting heavy casualties, but were eventually surrounded and had to withdraw towards Butenzorg. Shoji then assaulted Bandung, being supported by the 3rd Air Division now. The Sakaguchi detachment launched a large assault on Surakarta, taking it by March the 5th. Sakaguchi also sent a vanguard to hit Boyolali. Sensing the defenses to be weak there, the vanguard not only managed to take Boyolali with ease, they also continued towards Jogyakarta, seizing the town by dusk of the same day. The defenders were retreating everywhere the Japanese attacked, and it seemed that the Sakaguchi detachment decided to closely pursue them until the main objective was taken, that being Chilajap. A large garrison at Magalong surrendered because the garrison's commander assumed he was being attacked by the main Japanese force, though it was just a detachment. And that said commander then ordered the surrender of Semarang and Ambarawa. After occupying these towns, the Japanese continued to march towards Perbalinga, reaching it by March the 8th. Meanwhile, the 48th Division had crossed the Solo River, and its vanguard, the 47th Regiment and the 4th Tank Regiment, assaulted a Dutch unit at Karuban, chasing them all the way to Kertosono. At Kertosono, they engaged in a battle with 1,000 defenders, defeating them and taking the town, and the nearby town of Kederi. In the west, while departing from Balaraja in the morning of March the 6th, 
The Sado detachment discovered that many Dutch forces were retreating when engaged and tried to advance with haste through Tangerang to finally hit the capital of Batavia by dusk. Lieutenant General Maceo Muriyama's 2nd Division had taken all the key airfields that gave some defense to the capital. Batavia was enveloped, and during the night of March the 6th, the Japanese entered the colonial capital without any real opposition. Maruyama's 2nd Division then moved on towards the next major central Japanese city, that of Bandung. But unbeknownst to the 2nd Division, Shuiji had already sent a smaller unit southwards, to Seattle. There the invaders fought a defender stronghold which held many pillboxes across two lines of defense. At the end of a very bloody day, the pillboxes were taken with the help of the 3rd Air Division. And the next day, a Japanese unit hit the Tsitter Pass. There, Major General Jacob Pessman and around 9,000 soldiers defended a very thick jungle which held many pillboxes and other entrenchments. Under a thick fog, the Japanese charged all at once upon the defenders, taking them by complete surprise and causing a rout. Although there were some notable rearguard actions in general, the Dutch retreat descended into a chaotic flight. C.W. de Eong recalled, the retreat of the KNIL troops from Porong and Bandakan was a complete stampede. Panic without any organization. Officers and troops of the division yelled at us, Flee! Flee! The Japanese tanks are coming! End of quote. With news of Shoji's attacks on March the 6th, the Seto detachment was sent to reinforce Karijatsi, and at the same time, the Nasu and Fukushima detachments were assaulting Bittenzorg. To the east, the 40th Division captured Mojo Kyoto and sent a vanguard against Porong, while the rest of the division began to encircle Sorobaya. The Japanese quickly broke through the Dutch defenses, and by the afternoon, they took Porong. By March the 7th, Surabaya was completely enveloped, and the Eastern Japanese forces had taken Blora, Surakata, Boyolali, Yogyakarta, Magalang, Salatiga, Ambaloa, and Poorejo. And if you're wondering how many takes I just did to name all those places, it was about three times. Now, before taking Surabaya, the Japanese decided they needed to capture Tilejap, that sat on the southern coast of central Java. It was suspected by the Japanese that this port city would be used to evacuate the remaining defenders to Australia at the very last moment. Major General Yitsu Tsuchihashi led his triumphant 48th Division into Tilejep on March the 8th. The following day, Major General Pierre Cox surrendered his forces at the nearby town of Wangan. By then, the fight had really gone out of the Dutch. Lieutenant Colonel Humphreys had noted, The determination and morale of all ranks was of the highest order. The Dutch commander could not, however, be persuaded. I took this to be a definite indication of the Dutch lack of intention to fight at this juncture, and was in no way surprised when subsequent events took the form that they did. End of quote. By March the 7th, the situation was hopeless. Tilejap was captured. Surabaya was trying desperately to evacuate while being completely surrounded. Bandung was attacked from both the north and the west. General Heinze Porten knew his scattered and disorganized forces were done, and that guerrilla warfare was impossible because the natives were too hostile to their Dutch masters. At the Isola Hotel, General Imamura met with Tiporten and had demanded the total capitulation of the Dutch East Indies, something General Hein Tiporten and the Governor-General Tiarda van Stakenborg Stachawa, initially refused, claiming they did not hold the authority to do so. But in the morning of March the 8th at 9 a.m., General Tiporten knew 
the jig was up, and they agreed to surrender. That night, at the Dutch radio station Nihram, he broadcast the surrender orders to everyone. It was as follows. Wees laten u, vaarwel tot, betere tijden, leve de koningin. We are shutting down now. Farewell, till better times, long live the queen. General Pesman, who was commanding the defense of Bandung, met with Lieutenant General Imamura that afternoon and also surrendered his forces. Across Java and the Dutch East Indies, many Allied units that still resisted would also decide to surrender. The Abda forces had suffered 2,383 dead versus 671 for the Japanese. The conquest of the Dutch East Indies had finished over three months ahead of schedule. In Malang, Elizabeth van Kampen saw the Japanese arriving in the city and recalled, They came on bicycles or were just walking. They looked terrible, all with some cloths attached to the back of their caps. They looked very strange to us. This was a type of Japanese we had never seen before. End of quote. Many Dutch soldiers felt that they should have continued with guerrilla warfare. They greeted the surrender of Deporten's army with bitter resentment. In truth, after 300 years of some rather harsh Dutch rule, the Javanese natives would have made guerrilla warfare simply impossible. The Dutch East Indies campaign as a whole never seems to get the same amount of limelight as, let's say, Malaya, the Philippines, or even that of Burma. Yet the Borneo and other East Indies battles displayed the Japanese military's capability at its very best. Everything was intricately planned and well-coordinated at a blinding speed that caused havoc and confusion for the defenders. With 58,000 troops, the defenders were not heavily outnumbered. However, Japanese air support certainly smashed them. 350 bombers and 450 fighters simply annihilated the Abda Air Force of around 234 aircraft. Over the seas, the IGN utilized something like 50 warships against Abda's 33. The horror of war was just beginning for the Dutch. On March the 18th, as the IGA marched into central Java, in the town of Mitalan, one inhabitant named Franz Nicolas Ponda recalled, They were greeted with cheers from the natives. The very next day, the camp guard was doubled and visiting hours were drastically curtailed. End of quote. A week later, Nicolas and other prisoners were tossed on boiling hot freight cars. Thousands of tragedies would occur. In Batavia, after the surrender, Ralph Okers recalled his mother, the wife of a Dutch officer, rushed to see her husband as he was herded into a prison camp at Koningsplein. She was able to signal that she was pregnant, and father seemed to understand this. End of quote. That was to be the last time his mother would see him. Many captured Australians were transported in bamboo cages the same way pigs were. Men were folded up two to a cage. One child witnessed... tied up with their hands on their backs, also with their legs tied up. My sister and I saw how the Japanese pushed the Australians, saw those typical Australian hats. When the men were not quick enough, then the Japanese stung them with a bayonet. End of quote. Those who were lucky enough made it into the prison camps but many died from heat and asphyxiation. 
It's reported some bamboo cages were simply dropped into the harbor's waters, rivers, or the Java Sea. Elizabeth von Kappen, who had seen some of the caged prisoners, recalled, Up till today, I can still hear the harsh voices of these poor men crying and screaming for help and for water. End of quote. For many months, life went by in the towns without much Japanese intervention. However, after Christmas of 1942, the Japanese began to enter Dutch homes. Elizabeth von Kappen's father was taken away to a camp in Malang, and on her 16th birthday, she was taken to that camp to visit him. It was to be the last time she would ever see her father, and during the visit, a woman accompanying her made a minor incident, she recalled. Mrs. Hubrechts made the mistake to talk in Dutch to my mother while a Japanese soldier stood not too far away from us. He walked up to her and slapped her in the face, stating, You have to speak Malay or Japanese. End of quote. The following year, Elizabeth, her sister, and mother were all taken to Banyu Biru prison. For Dutch troops arriving in an assembly camp outside Surabaya, the brutality began quite early. Franz Nicholas Ponda recalled during a roll call, quote, A Jap commanded us in Japanese. Nobody understood what he said. Attention, right face, count off, etc. All in Japanese. The first blows soon fell. It was advisable not to attempt to ward them off because they would soon be followed by numerous kicks and thrusts with the butt of a rifle. Blood of the first victim flowed freely and we learned the first Japanese cuss words, baguero and canero. End of quote. Franz would later be sent on a cargo ship to Singapore's Changi prison, where many of his colleagues died of dysentery, en route, and were simply tossed overboard. Apart from some mop-up operations, Japan's conquest of the oil-rich Dutch East Indies was complete by March the 8th of 1942. What had the Japanese Empire gained? Abda Command had destroyed most of the oil wells, storage facilities and refineries putting a hefty break on Japanese oil production. Post-1942 Dutch East Indies and Borneo never regained the annual production of 65 million barrels of oil that it was achieved in 1940. Japan lacked technicians and specialized oil industry technology and equipment. Nevertheless, 4 million barrels per month, making 48 million barrels per year, should on paper have provided the Empire of Japan with enough oil to cover its needs without the empire having to resort to strategic inventories. In theory, combined with Southeast Asian production and the synthetic domestic production in places like Manchuria, this all should have easily supported Japan's needs. Japan estimated it needed around 44 million tons, of which 24 went to the IGA and IGN. However, oil production to Japan never exceeded 1.4 million tons per month, and in 1943, one year's production amounted to 13.5 tons. Why was that? While the oil was there, there simply was not enough tankers to move it. Tanker tonnage had gone from 575,000 tons in January of 1942 to a peak of 809 tons by July of 1943. But it was nowhere near enough to move all the oil from the far reaches of the Dutch East Indies. Although I certainly am getting ahead of myself when it comes to this history, somewhat, 
I'd like to mention one of the most important reasons why the Empire of Japan lost the Pacific War, and that was because of the submarine campaign. Deemed the silent service, Allied submarines began unrestricted warfare against the Japanese directly after Pearl Harbor. The U.S. knew Japanese merchant shipping lanes were its lifeblood. It's an island nation, after all. During the first half of the Pacific War, submarine warfare was largely ineffective. There were a ton of reasons as to why, like submarine commanders having the false belief that they were extremely vulnerable to aircraft and should be used primarily in scouting roles. Then there was the Achilles heel of so many stories I have told, the faulty Mark 14 torpedoes of the United States. But after 21 grueling months, the U.S. Navy finally made alterations to the torpedoes, which greatly improved the deadliness of their submarine forces. Throughout the war, U.S. codebreakers managed to decipher the IGN's sailing dates, their speeds, routes, and convoy information, unbeknownst to the Japanese. In 1942, U.S. subs sank 180 IGN ships, for a total of 725,000 tonnage. In comparison, German U-boats were smashing the Allied shipping for 6 million tons that year. In 1943, the US began to adopt the German Wolfpack strategy, and by the year's end, 22 IGN warships and 296 merchant ships would be sunk, alongside 1.5 million tonnage. By the end of the war, the U.S. submarine force would sink roughly 200 IGN warships and 1,300 merchant ships. The island nation of Japan was simply starved out. I hope later on in the series, perhaps when we're talking about 1944 or even 1945, I will be able to make some YouTube episodes or podcasts highlighting the submarine warfare during the Pacific War as to this very day, it's a story largely untold. But saying all of that, we are now done. The Java Sea Battles and that of the Java Campaign. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. I'd like to take the time to mention that after hearing so many questions and comments from those in the community of Kings and Generals, I decided to make a few episodes that answered those very questions. So please, on my YouTube channel, go check out What If Japan Attacked the Soviet Union During World War II. I think you'll like it. The Empire of the Rising Sun had achieved one of its main objectives of the Pacific War, securing the resources of the Dutch East Indies to supply its war machine. This also marked the end of the Abda defense in the Dutch East Indies and the collapse of the Malay barrier. The Indian Ocean and approach to Australia was now open to the Imperial Japanese Navy. The Japanese expansion would continue in the following week. So join us next time 